Before I start the show, I'd like to thank Mickey, who has joined my Patreon and is my new Night Spear. Seriously, thank you so much. Your encouragement and support means more to me than you can know. It has been over a month since WatCon, but I'd like to say to everyone I met there, you made the experience incredibly rich. I was nervous about meeting fans of the show because I struggled to imagine anyone who isn't an actual friend or close acquaintance listening, despite knowing there are people who do. That said, everyone was lovely, and regardless of whether we interacted in passing, had a short conversation in the lobby or at dinner, or were really able to get to know one another, I enjoyed spending time with all of you. Anyway, how about an episode? The stone won't fall until the podcast of the dragon comes to your device. Hey everybody, my name is Morgan. Suppose I just said welcome to the 44th episode of Podcast of the Dragon. RJ has Matt spend two books tagging along with Rand, writhing in existential agony and making questionable decisions, all in preparation for his moment to shine in the fires of heaven. It's time to dance with Jack of the Shadows, see what Matt is really made of, and watch him take on real responsibility with as bad a grace as he can manage. If we're nominating candidates for the best written characters in The Wheel of Time, I'm already on record as having put forth both Nynaeve and Swan, but a case also has to be made for Matt Cawthon. And I don't nominate him because of the growth that he goes through, or because I find him particularly true to life, or because I love where he ends up. I do it because he is unlike any character that I have ever come across in literature. RJ takes advantage of the opportunities provided by the fantasy genre to create someone with more facets than any person could realistically contain. Matt's like a character in a trench coat, made up of many different people, someone first introduced to us through others' eyes, a character who hardly knows himself, who rarely means what he thinks and seldom acts as he says he will. Yet, through the shifting, muddled layering, RJ builds a pretty believable person, someone balanced between the pull of fate and the desire to control his own life, the understandable longing to look out for number one, and the pure instinct to be selfless. And in so doing, he gives us something utterly unique. Compared to the other Emmonsfield Five, Matt has significantly less development when it comes to word count or point of view coming into Book Five, and that makes sense. 
Robert Jordan gave him the Shatter Logoth dagger and its ensuing fuckery to occupy him through the first two books so that he could focus on developing his other main POV characters. And then he takes book three, The Dragon Reborn, to outline to us the person that Matt really is, having up until that point only shown us who other people think that he is. RJ also uses The Dragon Reborn to provide Matt the last choice that he makes that is truly all his own, which is to go after the girls and save them from Robin's hitman, Lord Komar, when Matt overhears Robin tell him, hey, I can't allow Baelal to interfere with my plans, and if Elaine and her friends are going to be in tear, he might be able to use her against me, so kill them all. And an argument could be made that the pattern would have gotten Matt to tear no matter what, and his desire to go after the girls was just the avenue used. And I agree with that first part 100%. No matter what, Matt would have ended up in tear. But no Taviran patterny fuckery was needed to get him there. Instead, he chooses to go, all on his own, in response to forsaken fuckery, because people that he cared about had a danger aimed at them, of which they were unaware, and he wasn't about to let them deal with it on their own. But since then, he's been caught in what I think of as a Taviran trap, and every step that he takes to get out just digs him deeper in. In The Shadow Rising, Matt chooses to go through the first doorframe Tarangriel when he's in tear because he is alarmed and furious at how complacent he feels staying near Rand and idly waiting for more rain or waiting for the pattern to make use of him, just standing by and watching everything pass along while he plays cards and laments his lack of urgency and his lack of agency. And he's pushed to make a move after the Trolloc attack in the stone and more significantly after hearing about the White Cloaks in the Two Rivers in Chapter 13 of The Shadow Rising, which is called Rumors. He goes to discuss the matter with Perrin. He sees that Perrin's packing, and Matt finds that he can't even say that he wants to go. The words lock up in his throat, and so he asks Perrin to tell his mom and dad that he's okay and to look out for his sisters. And it says... Closing the door behind him, Matt wandered down the hallways aimlessly. His sisters, Eldrin and Bodwin, had always been ready to run, shouting, Mama, Matt's in trouble again. Matt's doing what he shouldn't, Mama. Especially Bode. They would be sixteen and seventeen now. Probably thinking of marriage before too much longer. Already with some dull farmer picked out, whether the fellow knew it or not. Had he really been gone so long? It did not seem so sometimes. Sometimes he felt as if he had left Emmons Field just a week or two past. Other times it seemed years gone, only dimly remembered at all. He could remember Eldrin and Bode smirking when he had been switched, but their faces were no longer sharp. His own sister's faces. These bloody holes in his memory, like holes in his life. He saw Barrelaine coming toward him and grinned in spite of himself. For all her airs, she was a fine figure of a woman. That clinging white silk was thin enough for a handkerchief, not to mention being scooped low enough at the top to expose a considerable amount of excellent pale bosom. He swept her his best bow, elegant and formal. A good evening to you, my lady. She started to sweep by without a glance, and he straightened angrily. Are you deaf as well as blind, woman? I'm not a carpet to walk over, and I distinctly heard myself speak. If I pinch your bottom, you could slap my face, but until I do, I expect a civil word for a civil word. The first stopped dead, eyeing him in that way women had. She could have sewn him a shirt and told his weight, not to mention when he had his last bath from that look. Then she turned away, murmuring to herself, 
All he caught was too much like me. He stared after her in amazement. Not a word to him. That face, that walk, and her nose so far in the air it was a wonder her feet touched the ground. That was what he got, speaking to the likes of Barrelane and Elaine, nobles who thought you were dirt unless you had a palace and bloodlines back to Arthur Hawkwing. Well, he knew a plump cook's helper, just plump enough, who did not think he was dirt. Dara had a way of nibbling his ears that his thoughts stopped dead in their tracks. He had been considering seeing whether Dara was awake and up for a cuddle. He had even considered flirting with Barrelane. Barrelane! And the last words he had said to Perrin, look after my sisters, as if he had already decided, already knew what to do. Only he had not. He would not. Not so easily, just sliding into it. There was a way, perhaps. Digging a gold coin from his pocket, he flipped it into the air and snatched it onto the back of his other hand, a Tarvalon mark he saw for the first time, and he was staring at the flame of Tarvalon, stylized like a teardrop. Burn all Aes Sedai, he announced loudly, and burn Randall Thor for getting me into this. A black and gold liveried servant stopped in mid-stride, staring at him wordlessly. The man's silver tray was piled high with rolled bandages and jars of ointment. As soon as he realized Matt had seen him, he gave a jump. Matt tossed the gold mark onto the man's tray. From the biggest fool in the world. Mind you spend it well on women and wine. Thank you, my lord, the man stammered as if stunned. Matt left him standing there. The biggest fool in the world. Aren't I just? So this is a really, really good bit of writing. RJ shows Matt caught up in this sense of distress where he's thinking about his sisters and about how his memories are so messed up that he can barely remember their faces. And it's almost like the subtext is him wondering if he could remember them better, would he feel more of a sense of urgency to go home? And there's real emotional pain there. He's agonizing about the holes in his memories messing with him, keeping him from wanting to go home and help his family because he should want to go home. And then next paragraph, it just slips away. There's this transition that should be jarring, but is totally smooth. He sees Barrelane coming towards him, and Matt goes from feeling distressed about being barely able to remember how his sisters look because he has holes in his memory and is missing giant gaps of his life to being like, there's Barrelane, and damn, she's hot, and damn, she's got nice tits, and then having to shake himself and be like, what the fuck? Because Barrelane is not the type of woman that he would normally flirt with. He doesn't like nobles and doesn't find them attractive. So RJ writes really well this transition from distress into distraction, and he's showing that Matt, right here, makes this choice to go through the doorway specifically because he wanted a choice, because he felt like there wasn't a choice, or rather that he was choosing not to decide, and in so doing, the choice was being robbed from him by the pattern just pushing his thoughts away, pushing his desires away, everything just sliding away. So he puts his foot down and refuses to give into it and goes through the doorway. And then the snakes absolutely inflame him because they don't answer his questions the way he expects to be answered. He asks a question, a yes or no question, and instead they tell him, hey, you need to go to Roydian. And when he's like, why? They say, oh, because you have this fate. And he finds out what fate is they're trying to throw him out of the Tarangrial. They're like, get out, get out. There's too many of y'all in here. Okay, okay, you're going to marry the daughter of the Nine Moons. You're going to give up half the light of the world to save the world. You're going to die and live again. And Matt doesn't get thrown out and then think, okay, well, I guess my next step is to go to Roydian. Instead, he slips right back into inertia, his default mode, which consists of staying next to Rand. And staying with Rand, 
just so happens to lead him to the place that they told him to go. And at that point, he makes another choice, takes a step and piggybacks onto Rand's trip into Roydian, and then his own obstinacy and stupidity takes him through door number two, which is roughly where I left off with him, having left Roydian and ruminating on these unwelcome memories and struggling with a lot of the same thoughts as before he went through the doorway. In chapter 36 of The Shadow Rising, it's called Misdirections, RJ has us in Matt's head as they're riding through the desert at the beginning of the journey to Cold Rock's Hole, and it is just before the peddlers show up and Matt gets his hat, and we have yet to see our first glimpse of his gifted memories. It says, I've been to Roydian. I've done what those snake folks said I had to. And what did he have to show for it? This bloody spear, a silver medallion, and... I could go now. If I have any sense, I will. He could go. Try to find his own way out of the waste, before he died of thirst or sunstroke. He could if Rand was not still pulling at him, holding him. The easiest manner of finding out was just to try leaving. Looking at the bleak landscape, he grimaced. A wind picked up. It felt as if it blew across an overheated cook stove, and small whirlwinds spun funnels of yellow dust across the cracked ground. Heat haze made the distant mountains shimmer. Maybe it was best to stay around a while longer. First off, RJ teases us with the information we're going to get in the next chapter, having Matt list what he has to show for having been to Roydian, the spear, the medallion, and dot dot dot. And we'll get those ellipses filled in fairly quickly. Next, Rand is still tugging at Matt, even though there's not really any need for it now, because the very geography holds him. The waste is a funnel leading to Kyrian, leading to the battle at Kyrian, and leading Matt to the band. Jordan doesn't spend a ton of time in Matt's head in the waste because he's got more important things to show us than Matt's complaints and discomfort. We already knew that Matt was uncomfortable before they left here. He was squirming in his situation because this is not the life that he wants, and while hearing him complain about it can be amusing, only to a certain extent. Instead, Archie uses Matt's point of views to aid with Aiel worldbuilding while playing out the aftermath of his choices as Matt gets locked into his fate, and Archie also spends some time looking at the complex and painful relationship that Matt has with Rand and doing some work to repair and rebuild it. Matt's wary of Rand as a male channeler because he has a strong sense of self-preservation and a powerful desire to control his own destiny. Being near Rand means the chance of pain or death, either from Rand losing control, losing his sanity, or because Rand is a target and any attack on him could potentially have a large AoE. And Matt's not interested in being collateral damage. He wants to enjoy his life, which, fair. But there is a flavor of hyperbole to Matt's inner narrative about Rand. There's a flavor of hyperbole to Matt's inner narrative about everything, honestly, but especially about Rand. And if you take Matt's inner narrative about his towering bestie at face value, he just sounds like a fucking asshole who's constantly saying shitty things about his friend. But if you look at Matt's inner narrative about everything else, melodramatic shitty inner dialogue is kind of his M.O. And if you realize, okay, well, he talks shit internally and complains about literally everything and everyone then maybe there's nothing particularly toxic in how he thinks of Rand, at least no more so than anyone else. And that makes RJ's writing of Matt a delicate balance, having him think a certain way about Rand while he acts very differently. 
Matt asks to go into Roidium with Rand, and the Wise Ones tell him no, and Rand advocates for him. He has no idea why Matt asks to go. We're in Egwene's eyes in that chapter, chapter 23, Beyond the Stone, and when she describes the scene on the slopes of Chaindare, she tells of Rand doing a little bow and asking leave to go into Roydian, and then Matt scrambles up, copies the bow, and asks leave to go in as well, and she says that Rand's head whips toward Matt, and then Kulidin tries to stab Matt, and the wise ones channel and throw him backward, and then tell Matt, young man, you don't know what you've done, you need to go back with the others and Rand interferes. He looks at Matt, kind of measures him for a second, and then is like, hey, he gets to come with me. You said I can go, and I say he can come, and I don't care what you say. He's coming with me. And this is a way of reaching out, where Rand is saying, look, I've got you, and it doesn't even matter to me why you want to go. It's obviously desperately important. Why the fuck else would you do this? It's not a thing that you would do if you weren't desperate, so you can come with me, and I'm here for you. And earlier, when they're approaching the portal stone, Rand wonders why Matt's even coming. He doesn't understand it and thinks maybe he's coming for friendship, but maybe not, because with Matt, you can never know. And it doesn't matter in the end to Rand. He just helps. And then RJ shows Rand and Matt together after they get into the city. They haven't been allowed to bring weapons or water. They're sunburned and super thirsty, and the city is dusty and abandoned. It's all skyscrapers and civic art and tons of dry fountains. And we're in Matt's head. It says, Matt trotted to the nearest fountain anyway, just on the off chance, and leaned on the waist-high white rim. Three unclothed women, twice as tall as he and supporting an odd wide-mouthed fish over their heads, peered down into a wide, dusty basin, no drier than his mouth. Of course, Rand said behind him. I should have thought of this before. Matt looked over his shoulder. Thought of what? Rand was staring at the fountain, shaking with silent laughter. Get hold of yourself, Rand. You didn't go crazy in the last minute. You should have thought of what? A hollow gurgling whipped Matt's eyes back to the fountain. Abruptly, water gushed out of the fish's mouth, a stream as thick as his leg. He scrambled into the basin and ran to stand under the downpour, head back and mouth open. Cold, sweet water. Cold enough to make him shiver, sweeter than wine. It soaked his hair, his coat, his breeches. He drank until he thought he would drown, finally staggering over to lean, panting against a woman's stone leg. Rand was still standing there, staring at the fountain, face red and lips cracked, laughing softly. No water, Matt. They said we couldn't bring water, but they did not say anything about what was already here. Rand, aren't you going to drink? Rand gave a start, then stepped into the now ankle-deep basin and splashed across the stand where Matt had been, drinking in the same way, eyes closed and face tilted up to let the water pour over him. Matt watched him worriedly. Not mad, exactly. Not yet. But how long would Rand have stood there laughing while Thirst turned his throat to stone if he had not spoken? Matt left him there and climbed out of the fountain. Some of the water drenching his clothes had seeped down into his boots. He ignored the squish he made at every step. He was not sure he could get his boots back on if he pulled them off. Besides, it felt good. And a little bit further, it says, The heart has to be that way, Matt. Rand was climbing out of the basin, dripping wet. The heart? The wise ones said I had to go to the heart. They must mean the center of the city. Rand looked back at the fountain, and suddenly the flow dwindled to a trickle, then ceased. There's an ocean of good water down there. Deep. So deep I nearly didn't find it. If I could bring it up. No need to waste it, though. We can get another good drink when it's time to leave. Matt shifted his feet uncomfortably. Fool. 
Where did you think it came from? Of course he bloody channeled. Did you think it just started flowing again after the light knows how long? Center of the city, of course. Lead on. So, Matt would prefer that Rand not channel in front of him. But Matt would prefer that no one channel in front of him. And watching his friend show signs of questionable sanity disturbs him. But seeing Egwene act like an Aes Sedai also disturbs him, probably nearly as much. And the changes in Perrin make him uncomfortable, too. Matt is complaining dramatically in his internal narrative, but the loyalty is there, and RJ explores it further once they get into the heart and walk across the plaza, weaving their way through all the objects of the power to Avendasora, where they take a little time to rest under the tree and chill out, and they're really enjoying themselves and would like to hang all day, but Rand remembers that they're there for a reason, and it says, Rand was getting up. Matt copied him reluctantly. What do you think we'll find in there? I think I have to go on alone from here, Rand said slowly. What do you mean? Matt demanded. I've come this far, haven't I? I'm not going to turn tail now. Wouldn't I just like to, though? It isn't that, Matt. If you go in there, you come out a clan chief or you die, or come out mad. I don't believe there's any other choice unless maybe the wise ones go in there. Matt hesitated. To die and live again. That was what they had said. He had no intention of trying to be an Aiel clan chief, though. The Aiel would probably stick spears through him. We'll leave it to luck, he said, pulling the Tarvalon mark from his pocket, getting to be my lucky coin. Flame, I go in with you. Head, I stay out. He flipped the gold coin quickly before Rand could object. Somehow he missed grabbing it. The mark careened off his fingertips, clinked to the pavement, bounced twice, and landed on edge. He glared at Rand accusingly. Do you do that sort of thing on purpose? Can't you control it? No. The coin fell over, showing an ageless woman's face surrounded by stars. It looks like you stay out here, Matt. Did you just... He wished Rand would not channel around him. Oh, burn me. If you want me to stay out here, I'll stay. Snatching the coin up, he stuffed it back into his pocket. Listen, you go in, do whatever it is you have to, and get back out. I want to leave this place, and I am not going to stand here forever, twiddling my thumbs, waiting for you. And you needn't think I'll come in after you either, so you would best be careful. I wouldn't think that of you, Matt, Rand said. Matt stared at him suspiciously. What was he grinning at? So long as you understand, I won't. Ah, go on and be a bloody ideal chief. You have the face for it. Don't come in there, Matt. Whatever happens, don't. He waited until Matt nodded before turning away. This bit with the two of them in Roydian is a beautiful example of Matt thinking, saying, and doing different things. He thinks wary and uncharitable thoughts about his friend who is a male channeler, and while he mostly doesn't comment too much on Rand's sanity, he does talk gruffly to him with a go-ahead-and-get-yourself-killed, dickhead, I'm not going to help you tone. But the action Matt that is on deck is one who is totally prepared to go in with Rand. And so RJ is able to show us in just a little bit of them together that maybe their friendship is in better shape than it seemed to be after Rand lashed out at Matt and Perrin in book two, and then Matt learned he could channel and treated him like shit about it. Jordan in book four gives us just three Matt point of views after the trip through Roydian, including introducing the peddlers to us through his eyes. And we also get to see the aftermath of the Trolloc attack on Cold Rock's hole through his eyes, 
where we learn that the Shido have taken off for Alkirkdal, and Rand says, I'm going to follow with everyone, and I'm sorry if people feel like they've been dishonored, but customs don't apply to me, so sucks to suck. This is in chapter 50. It is called Traps, and it says, Someone had best let the peddlers know, Rand continued. They won't want to miss the fair, but if they don't stop those fellows drinking, they will be too drunk to handle reins. What of you, Matt? Are you coming? He certainly did not intend to let the peddlers get away from him, not his way out of the waste. Oh, I'm right behind you, Rand. The worst of it was it felt right saying that. Bloody Tavir and tugging at me. How had Perrin pulled free? Light, I wish I was with him right now. I guess I am. So, the waste is a trap. And it's not just being held by Rand. It's a dangerous place that requires resources and safety in numbers and knowledge of the way to get out. You can't just take your horse and leave. So the moment that the peddlers appeared, they've been this bright spot in Matt's life because they seem like they could be a way out that doesn't involve Rand. Until things get too serious in the chapter called A Breaking in the Threefold Land where Rand arrives at Alcaradal and goes down with Rourke and a bunch of the Tartad, and Moraine wants to go with Rand, and Rand tells her, no, you can't come. She's like, well, bring Lon at least, and he's like, no, not Lon, he can stay with you. And then it says, what about me, Rand? Matt said suddenly, rolling a gold coin across the fingers of one hand as though unaware of it. You have any objections to my going with you? Do you want to? I thought you'd stay with the peddlers. Matt frowned at the wagons below, looked at the Shido lined before the mountain gap. I don't think it will be so easy to get out of here if you get yourself killed. Burn me if you don't stick me in the rendering kettle one way or- Dovinia, he muttered. Rand had heard him say that before. Lon said it meant luck in the old tongue, and flipped the gold coin into the air. When he tried to snatch it back, it bounced off his fingertips and fell to the ground. Somehow, improbably, the coin landed on edge rolling downhill, bounding across cracks in the baked clay, glittering in the sunlight all the way down to the wagons where it finally fell over. Burn me, Rand, he growled. I wish you wouldn't do that. So, Matt's not wrong. He's not going to get out of there if Rand dies, and sending him in allows RJ to add a small amount of humor to this shit show of a scene where Rand goes into Alkerdal and talks to the chiefs, and Kuladin shouting as Savannah is demanding that he be allowed to speak, and everything is kind of devolving. And in Rand's internal narrative, he's telling us that Madge is on Pips, holding Jaden's reins, and he keeps surreptitiously gesturing for Rand to get back in the saddle so they can get the fuck out of there. And Matt is not solely engaging in self-interest here. He feels compelled to protect Rand. And Rand feels compelled to protect him as well, as R.J. shows us early on in Chapter 6 of The Fires of Heaven. After Rand bale fires the Darkhounds that come after him when he's at the roof of the Maidens, he wakes up due to the feel of their evil and runs up to the top floor and bale fires them. It occurs to him that he is not the only target in Roydian that a Forsaken might like to kill. And so he sprints a mile, because Matt is at the opposite end of the city, as far away as he can be from Moraine, and truthfully as far as he can be from Rand. And sure enough, there are a whole bunch of Darkhounds clawing at Matt's door, trying to get in at him. So Rand balefires those as well, and it says, Releasing Sidene, he found a place where he would not cut his hand to shreds and pounded on the door. Suddenly the pain in his side was very real and present. 
He took a deep breath and tried to thrust it away. Matt? It's me, Rand. Open up, Matt. After a moment, the door opened a crack, letting out a spill of lamplight. Matt peered through doubtfully, then pulled the door wider, leaning against it as if he had run ten miles carrying a sack of rocks, except for a silver foxhead medallion hanging around his neck, its eyes shaped and shaded like the ancient Aes Sedai symbol. He was naked. The way Matt felt about Aes Sedai, Rand was surprised he had not sold the thing long since. Deeper in the room, a tall, golden-haired woman was calmly wrapping a blanket around herself, a maiden by the spears and buckler lying at her feet. Rand hastily averted his eyes and cleared his throat. I just wanted to make sure you were all right. We're fine. Uneasily, Matt looked around the antechamber. Now we are. You killed it or something? I don't want to know what it was, as long as it's gone. It's bloody hard on a man sometimes being your friend. Not only a friend. Another Taviran, and perhaps a key to victory in Tarman Gaiden. Anyone who wanted to strike at Rand had reason to strike at Matt as well, but Matt always tried to deny both things. They're gone, Matt. Darkhounds. Three of them. I told you, I didn't want to know, Matt groaned. Darkhounds now. I can't say it isn't always something new around you. A man wouldn't get bored, not until the day he died. So, Matt's very hyperbolic here, and he blames the dangers that he is facing on being Rand's friend, as if he's not a target all on his own. And we also see here in Rand's inner narrative that Matt denies that he's Taviran. He denies that enemies would have a reason to strike at him. But that is not actually true anymore. This is chapter 6 of book 5, but we get Matt's first point of view at the end of chapter 3, when he approaches Rand as his buddy is walking back to the roof of the Maidens from his meeting with the clan chiefs, and Matt tries to get his attention and ends up having to call him loose Theron. And it says, He made himself walk to arm's reach of the other man. Rand was nearly a head taller, and in the early evening gloom he seemed taller yet, colder than he had been. I've been thinking, Rand. Matt wished he did not sound hoarse. He hoped Rand would answer to his right name this time. I've been away from home a long time. We both have, Rand said softly. A long time. Suddenly he gave a laugh, not loud, but almost like the old Rand. Are you beginning to miss milking your father's cows? Matt scratched his ear, grinning a bit. Not that exactly. If he never saw the inside of another barn, it would be too soon. But I was thinking that when Kadir's wagons go, I might go with them. Rand was silent. When he spoke again, the brief flash of mirth was gone. All the way to Tarvalon. It was Matt's turn to hesitate. He wouldn't give me away to Moraine, would he? Maybe, he said casually. I don't know. That's where Moraine will want me. Maybe I'll find a chance to get back to the two rivers. See if everything's all right at home. See if Perrin's alive. See if my sisters are and mother and da. We all have to do what we must, Matt. Not what we want to very often. What we must. It sounded like an excuse to Matt, as if Rand was asking him to understand. Only, he had done what he had to himself a few times. I can't blame Perrin on him. Not by himself. Nobody bloody forced me to follow after Rand like some bloody heel hound. Only that was not true either. He had been forced. Just not by Rand. You won't stop me leaving? I don't try to tell you to come or go, Matt, Rand said wearily. The wheel weaves the pattern, not me, and the wheel weaves as the wheel wills. For all the world, like a bloody Aes Sedai. Half turning to go, Rand added, don't trust Kadir, Matt. In some ways, he's about as dangerous a man as you ever met. Don't trust him an inch, or you might get your throat slit, and you and I wouldn't be the only ones to regret that. Then he was gone, 
down the street in the deepening dusk with the maidens around him like slinking wolves. Matt stared after him. Trust the merchant? I wouldn't trust Kadir if he was tied in a sack. So Rand did not weave the pattern? He came close. Before ever any of them learned that the prophecies had anything to do with them, they had learned that Rand was Taviran. Matt knew about being Taviran. He was one himself, though not as strong as Rand. Sometimes Rand could affect people's lives, change the course of them just by being in the same town. Perrin was Taviran as well, or maybe had been. Moraine had thought it was significant finding three young men who grew up in the same village all destined to be Taviran. She meant to fit them all into her plans, whatever they were. It was supposed to be a grand thing. All the Taviran Matt had been able to learn about had been men like Arthur Hawkwing or women like Mabriam and Sharid, whose stories Seth had founded the Compact of the Ten Nations after the breaking, but none of the stories told what happened when one Taviran was close to another as strong as Rand. It was like being a leaf in a whirlpool. So Matt has grown up a smidge. He acknowledges, okay, it's Taviran. I am tied to the pattern. Archie not only tells us that, he shows us that Matt has made some effort to learn about Taviran, presumably asking questions about famous historical Taviran, or at the very least squirreling away any information about Taviran he manages to hear, since we know he's not much of a reader. And in making that effort, he has finally come to a place of admitting to himself that none of this is Rand's fault, and it's not even Moraine's fault, though that doesn't mean she doesn't have plans for him, plans that he is not interested in being part of. And while it may not be anybody's fault, that doesn't mean he has to stand still for it. Kadir is loading his wagons full of all of the objects of the power that Moraine can cram in, which he is going to take to Tarvalon. And Matt, who has all along seen the peddlers as his ticket out of the waste, plans to go with him. He is not going to miss this opportunity to slip away and live his life. But it doesn't quite work like that because Matt isn't able to go along with Kadir. Instead, everyone leaves together in about 12 hours upon hearing that Kuladin is heading for the Jankai Pass. And instead of slipping away and heading back to the two rivers or going to seek another adventure once the peddlers are on the other side of the Dragon Wall, Matt is being funneled to the part of his fate that is most central to himself, the core of the memories that he gets saddled with, the fate that the Finn only lightly touch on when they scream at him, go to Roydian, son of battles. It's time for Matt to take his final pass, to learn what will be. Book five is where Matt gains acceptance, or more truthfully has it forced upon him. In book four, RJ gives us a tiny taste of the aftermath of Matt's second pass after his trip through the doorway in Roydian, which I touched on in episode 30 when I quoted from chapter 37, Imri Stand, as Matt observes the trading between the Aegeal and the Peddlers and notes that one of Kadir's men is trying to sell them a giant crossbow, and he immediately starts thinking about the best way to make use of such a weapon tactically, and spins out a battle scenario in his head. And then later, as Modian plays a song, a war ballad, of a battle Matt remembers, only he lets us know that it went down a whole bunch shittier than the lyrics portray it. And we don't hear from Matt again in The Shadow Rising until Chapter 50, Traps, which is when the Trollocs attack in Cold Rock's Hold. We see most of the fuckery from Rand's point of view, which centers around a Drakkar, and then we cut to Matt as he's yanking his spear out of a Trolloc's chest. It says, 
A maiden stopped beside him, unveiling. He could not make out her face, all moon shadows. You dance your spear well, gambler. Strange days when Trollocs come to cold rocks. She glanced at the shadowy shape he thought was more rain. They might have forced a way in without the eyes to die. There weren't enough for that, he said without thinking. They were meant to pull attention here. So those Drakkar would have a free hand to reach Rand? I think you were right, she said slowly. Are you a battle leader among the wetlanders? He wished he had kept his mouth shut. I read a book once, he muttered, turning away. Bloody pieces of other men's body memories. Maybe the peddlers would be ready to leave after this. And that there is all that we get in book four. Just a taste or a hint of what the fox's third gift might be. Now in book five, Archie wastes no time in expanding our knowledge. The first time we're in Matt's head at the end of chapter three. It says, The memories that had once cluttered his head like raisins in a cake now blended with his own. In one part of his mind, he knew he had been born in the two rivers twenty years before, but he could remember clearly leading the flanking attack that turned the Trollocs at Maganda and dancing in the court of Tarmandawin and a hundred other things, a thousand, mostly battles. He remembered dying more times than he wanted to think of. No seams between lives anymore. He could not tell his memories from the others unless he concentrated. Matt's story in the Fires of Heaven is broken into seven POVs, two of which take place before they cross the Dragon Wall, and the other five once they reach Kyrian. His second perspective is in Chapter 22, Bird Calls by Night. We open the scene where Melindra is giving Matt a massage, and she's calling him short. She's like, you're well-muscled for such a short man, Matt, which, fuck you, Melindra. Short guys are hot, and assholes like you make out like it's some flaw if a dude is shorter than you, and unfortunately some of them get a major complex about it and act like toxic misogynistic shitbags, but a confident short man who could give a fuck what the Melindras of the world think has major sex appeal. Anyway, it says, Only a yield could call him short, and every other land he had been in he was taller than most men, if not always by much. He could remember being tall taller than Rand when he rode against Arthur Hawkwing, and a hand shorter than he was now when he fought beside Maysine against the Ilgari. He had spoken to Lon, claiming he had overheard some names. The warder said Maysine had been a king of Iharon, one of the Ten Nations. That much Matt already knew, some four or five hundred years before the Trolloc Wars. Lon doubted that even the Brown Aja knew more. Much had been lost in the Trolloc Wars, and more in the War of the Hundred Years, those were the earliest and latest of the memories that had been planted in his skull. Nothing after Arter Payne dragged Tanrial, and nothing before Macine of Iharon. So, the bird calls, that are the bird calls by night, are wards that Rand set to go off in the event of Shadowspawn. Rand learned this from the Shinerans, who use different bird calls to convey different information with their human sentries, and Rand incorporates that in his use of the One Power setting wards that will trigger the sounds of different Two Rivers birds. And Matt and Melindra hear the bird calls that indicate Shadowspawn have triggered these wards close to them. So they run out to fight Trollocs, and Matt kills a Murdral. And after Melindra asks, what was he shouting in the old tongue, Matt's like, oh, something I heard once. And it says, for the honor of the Red Eagle, the battle cry of Manetherin. Most of his memories were from Manetherin. Some of those he had had before the twisted doorway. Moraine said it was the old blood coming out, just as long as it did not come out of his veins. She put an arm around his shoulders as he started back toward their tent. I saw you with the night runner, Matt Cawthon. 
That was one of the Aegeal names for Murdral. You are as tall as a man needs to be. Grinning, he slipped his arm around her waist, but he could not get the attack out of his head. He wanted to. His thoughts were too snarled in his borrowed memories, but he could not. Why had anyone launched such a hopeless assault? No one but a fool attacked overwhelming force without a reason. That was the thought he could not pry out of his head. No one attacked without a reason. And RJ ends the POV there, showing Matt deeply troubled by this, and he leaves it at that because Matt ruminating on the pointlessness of the attack has nothing to do with his character. Its purpose is to prime curiosity in the reader and make it clear to us that something is fucky about this attack. And then Rand pursues it, talking to death with Asmodian. Why is Samael baiting me? I need to know why. And Asmodian's like, maybe one of the others wants you to think it's Samael to send you against him. Another thing I find interesting in this little bit is how Matt tells us he has memories that are actually from his former lives, i.e. ones he had before Roydian, in addition to those the foxes gave him, those memories that we learn in Book 11, the Finns somehow glean from the people who come through the doorway asking questions. And considering how many memories that he has, the doorway that Mayen traded to Tyr, which sat in the belly of the stone for 300 years until it suddenly had a very busy night, had to have been in a centralized location at one point for so many people to go through it. If Matt has no memories before Mayseen of Eharon, we can assume the snake doorway hadn't been discovered much before then, and he has no memories after Ardor Hawkwing because Mayen was carved from the wreckage of Ardor Hawkwing's empire, and a relatively small number of firsts, along with the Aes Sedai they let study it, used it in the 700 years between the founding of their city-state and when it was traded to Tyr. And presumably none of those people were awesome enough generals to warrant a space in Matram Cawthon's head. We are never given a ratio of memories from Matt's former lives versus borrowed memories gifted by the Finn, but the way he talks, and from what we see when he wakes up in Tarvalon with jumbled memories of soldiering, there have to be way more borrowed memories. Manetheran only lasted a thousand years, and even if he was spun out right away and lived an average of 40 to 50 years, I'm figuring he maybe had 20 different lives tops in Manetheran. So, if he had thousands of memories and the majority are from Manetheran, we can presume that the Finns stuffed extra Manetheran memories in his head, either because they felt like it was a favor to him or culturally relevant, like they picked the best memories that were suited to him, or they did it to amuse themselves, or whatever. We can also presume that the doorway spent a good bit of its 1,500-year circulation in close proximity to Manetheran. And if that's the case, how many Manetheraners, Manetheranites, mountain homers, went through the doorway? Were people from Manetheran more likely to use it? Or just people from the West? Did a particular nation have control of it? It's all just kind of interesting. But I have to surmise that it was in a fairly central location at some point, and also likely well-known. And most references to it in the histories of the old nations were lost because so many records were destroyed in the Trolloc Wars and the War of the Hundred Years. And it's also interesting to think of the type of people who go through the Tarangriel and realize that most of the memories that are in his head are the memories of people who felt desperate. Whether it was desperately curious, desperately motivated, desperately in fear of their life or the lives of their nations. So while none of them are him, 
all of them are like him in the sense that they are all a smidge adventurous, reckless, foolish, and desperate, and that's fun to consider. One of the things that I think really can make such a great case for Matt being one of Jordan's best written characters is that RJ has minimal word count with Matt in this book. His characterization of Matt in the Fires of Heaven is broken into seven point of views for 22,000 words, which is a relatively small amount. It's like 6.5% of the total word count of the book, and RJ spends the majority of that with Matt in general mode. We get two perspectives before the crew reaches Kyrien, which allows RJ to establish Matt's relationship with the dark friend sleeper agent who's supposed to kill him if necessary to direct Rand towards Samael, and to outline that Matt still wants to get the fuck out of the waste and away from Rand, and he's still desperate to be in control of his own life, and RJ makes it a point when he's in his inner narrative to show him trying to fight off or separate himself from these memories that are in his head. Much like Rand, Matt spends time in this book shaking himself and thinking, hey, Whoa, that's not me. Then we reach the city of Kyrien, and it's the day before the battle, and RJ gives us Matt's third point of view in chapter 42, which is called Before the Arrow. The chapter opens on Matt staring at the roof of his tent, and it says, By his book, matters had long since gone beyond merely serious. Sirius was being stuck in the waste with no idea of the way out. Sirius was dark friends popping up when you least expected. Trolloc attacks in the night, the odd murderer freezing your blood with an eyeless stare. That sort of thing came quickly and usually was done before you had much chance to think. It was certainly not what you would seek out, yet if you had to, you could live with it if you could live through it. But for days he had known where they were heading and why. Nothing quick about it. Days to think. I am no bloody hero, he thought grimly, and I'm no bloody soldier. Fiercely, he pushed down a memory of walking fortress walls, ordering his last reserves to where another crop of Trolloc scaling ladders had sprung up. That was not me. The light burn, whoever it was, I'm— He did not know what he was. A sour thought. But whatever he was, it involved gambling and taverns, women and dancing. That he was sure of. It involved a good horse and every road in the world to choose from, not sitting and waiting for somebody to shoot arrows at him or try to stick a sword or a spear through his ribs. Any different would make him a fool, and he would not be that, not for Rand or Moraine or anybody else. As he sat up, the silver foxhead medallion, hanging on its leather thong, slipped from the unlaced neck of his shirt. He tucked it back before taking a long swallow of wine. The medallion made him safe from Moraine or any other Aes Sedai, as long as they did not get it away from him. Surely one or another would try sooner or later but nothing except his own wits kept him safe from some fool killing him along with a few thousand other fools, or from Rand, or from being Taviran. A man ought to be able to find a profit in something like that, having events twist themselves around him. Rand certainly had, in a way. He himself had never noticed anything twisting around him except the fall of dice. He would not turn away from some of the things that happened to Taviran in stories. Wealth and fame dropped into their pockets as if from the sky— Men who wanted to kill them decided to follow instead, and women with ice in their eyes decided to melt. Not that he was complaining at what he had, really, and certainly not that he wanted anything like Rand's bargain. The price to get into the game was too high. It was just that he seemed to be stuck with all the burdens of being Taviran and none of the pleasure. So Matt is deeply troubled by the complacency that has kept him with Rand. Days to think. Two weeks by now on this side of the Dragon Wall. 
no longer in a burning desert hellhole that he can't escape from because he's not sure of the way out and wouldn't be able to carry enough water even if he did know. Once they were well into Kyrian, he was as free to slip away as any of the men that Haddon and Kadir keeps losing. When we're first in Kadir's head, he tells us that each day sees another of his drivers gone, and we hear from Rand that he handpicks people from the Kyrian and refugees to replace them. But Matt didn't feel free to leave, or else he struggled to leave without someone to go with him. He was seeking a companion when he wanted to leave in the stone, thinking of both Tom and Perrin. And for him to go on his own requires something desperate. So a bit further, it says, It is time to go, he told the empty tent, then paused thoughtfully and sipped at the goblet. It is time to get on Pips and ride. Ride to Camelin, maybe. Not a bad city, so long as he avoided the royal palace. Or Lugard. He had heard rumors about Lugard. A fine place, that, for the likes of him. Time to leave Rand in my dust. He's got a bloody Aiel army and more maidens than he can count taking care of him. He doesn't need me. That last was not strictly true. In some strange way, he was tied to Rand's success or failure in Tarman Gaiden. Him and Perrin both. Three Taviran all tangled together. The histories would probably only mention Rand. Small chance he or Perrin would find any place in the stories. And then there was the Horn of Valir, which he did not want to think about and would not, not until he had to. There might be some way out of that particular mess yet. Any way he looked at it, the Horn was a problem for another day, a distant day. With luck, all those bills would come due on a very distant day. Only that might take more luck than he had. The point now was that he had said all of that about going and felt scarcely a twinge. Not long ago he had been unable even to speak of leaving. When he got too far from Rand, he had been drawn back like a hooked fish on some invisible line. Then he had been able to say it, even to lay plans, but the slightest thing would distract him, make him put off his schemes for stealing away. Even in Freudian, when he had told Rand he was going, he had been sure something would get in the way. It had, in a manner of speaking. Matt had made it out of the waste, but he was no further from Rand than before. This time, he did not think he would be diverted. Not like I was abandoning him, he muttered. If he can't bloody take care of himself by now, he'll never be able to. I'm not his bloody nursemaid. And while Matt does not feel a twinge once he says that he wants to go, and he feels like taking care of Rand is not his job, his love for Rand and the friendship that they fortify during their time in the Waste means that he can't leave without saying goodbye. So he goes to Rand's tent, and when he gets there, Rand's not there. There's only Asmodian, who shrugs and tells him, I don't know when Rand is going to be back. No man clocks the Lord Dragon. And it says, I'll wait. He meant to go through with this. Too many times he had found himself putting off going. Natale sipped at his wine, studying him across the goblet's rim. It was bad enough that Moraine and the Wise Ones watched him in that silent, searching way. Sometimes Egwene did, too. She had certainly changed, half Wise One and half Aes Sedai, but from Rand's glee man it was enough to set his teeth on edge. The best thing about leaving would be not having anyone look at him as if they would know in a minute what he was thinking and already knew whether his small clothes were clean. Two maps lay spread out near the fire pit. One, copied in detail from a tattered map found in a half-burned town, covered northern Kyrian from west of the Alguenya, halfway to the spine of the world, while the other, newly drawn and sketchy, showed the land around the city. Slips of parchment held down with pebbles dotted both. If he was going to stay and ignore Natale's searching look at the same time, there was nothing for it but to study the maps. 
With the toe of his boot, he shifted a few pebbles on the map of the city so he could read what was written on the parchments. In spite of himself, he winced. If the Aiel scouts could count, Kuladin had nearly 160,000 spears. Shido and those who had supposedly gone to join their societies among the Shido. A hard nut to crack and prickly. This side of the spine of the world had not seen an army like that since Arthur Hawkwing's time. The second map showed the other clans that had crossed the Dragon Wall. All had now, in one form or another, strung out according to when they had left the Jangai and spread apart, but too close to here for comfort. The Shianda, the Kadara, the Dorian, and the Miyagoma. Between them, they apparently had at least as many spears as Kuladin. They had not left many behind, if that was true. The seven clans with Rand almost doubled that, easily enough to face Kuladin of the four clans. Either or. Not both. Not at once. But both at once might be what Rand had to fight. What the Aiel called the bleakness had to be affecting those clans, too. Every day still men tossed down their weapons and vanished, but only a fool would think it lessened their numbers any more than it did Rand's, and there was always the possibility that some of those were going to Kuladin. The Aiel did not speak of it very much or very freely and masked the idea behind talk of joining societies, but even now men and maidens decided they could not accept Rand or what he had told them of themselves. Every morning some were missing, and not all left their spears behind. So firstly, Matt here blames being the subject of people's curiosity solely on proximity to Rand. Not because he himself is interesting. He's like, oh, once I get away from Rand, people will stop noticing me. I'll slip back into obscurity, which is ludicrous. And then Lon comes in and tries to get Matt talking. And Matt's not really interested, so Lon counters his initial reticence by cleverly asking Asmodian, hey, what do you think? Should we take all of our forces and crush Kuladin in one fell swoop tomorrow? Which is idiotic military advice and bait that Matt can't help but snap up. It says, Matt grunted and Lon glanced at him before returning to his study of the maps. You do not think it a good plan? Why not? He said it so casually that Matt answered without thinking, Two reasons. If you surround Kuladin, trap him between you and the city, you might crush him against it. How long was Rand going to be? But you might push him right over the walls, too. From what I hear, he's nearly gotten over twice already, even without miners or siege engines, and the city is hanging on by its teeth. Say his piece and go. That was it. Press him enough and you'll find yourself fighting inside Kyrien. Nasty thing, fighting in a city. And the idea is to save the place, not finish ruining it. Those slips laid out on the maps, the maps themselves, made it all so clear. Frowning, he squatted with his elbows on his knees. Lon got down with him, but he hardly noticed. A dicey problem. And fascinating. Best if you try to shove him away. Hit him from the south, mainly. He pointed to the river Galen. It joined the Alguenya some miles north of the city. There are bridges up here. Leave the Shido a clear path to them. Always leave a way out unless you really want to find out how hard a man can fight when he's got nothing to lose. His finger slid east. Wooded hills for the most part, it seemed. Probably not much different from right around here. A blocking force here on this side of the river will make sure they go for the bridges if it's big enough and positioned right. Once they are moving, Kuladin won't want to try fighting someone ahead of him while you're coming behind. Yes, almost exactly the same as at Genji. Not unless he's a complete fool, anyway. They might make it to the river in good order, but those bridges will choke them. I don't see Aiel swimming or hunting out fords, for that matter. Keep the pressure on. Shove them across. With luck, you'll be able to harry them all the way to the mountains. It was like Quendai fords, too, late in the Trolloc Wars and on much the same scale. 
not much different from the Taurus Shan, either, or Sulmain Gap, before Hawkwing found his stride. The names flickered through his head, the images of bloody fields forgotten even by historians. Absorbed in the map as he was, they did not register as anything but his own remembrances. Too bad you don't have more cavalry. Light cavalry is best for the harrying. Bite at the flanks, keep them running, and never let them settle to fight, but Aiel should do almost as well. And the other reason? Lon asked quietly. Matt was caught up in it now. He more than merely liked gambling, and battle was a gamble to make dicing and taverns a thing for children and toothless invalids. Lives were the stake here, your own and other men's, men who were not even there. Make the wrong wager, a foolish bet, and cities died or whole nations. Nateo's somber music was fit accompaniment. At the same time, this was a game that set the blood racing. Without lifting his eyes from the map, he snorted. You know as well as I. If even one of those four clans decides to side with Kuladin, they'll take you from behind while your hands are still full of Shido. Kuladin will be the anvil and they the hammer, with you the nut between. Only take half of what you have against Kuladin. That makes it an even fight, but you'll have to settle for it. There was no such thing as fairness in war. You took your enemy from behind, when he least expected it, when and where he was weakest. You still have an edge. He has to worry about a sortie from the city. The other half you've split in three parts. One to funnel Kulid into the river, the other two a few miles apart between the city and the four clans. Very neat, Lon said, nodding. That slap card face never changed, but approval touched his voice if lightly. It would gain a clan nothing to attack either force, especially not when the other could take it in the rear, and none will try to interfere in what happens around the city for the same reason. Of course, all four could join. Not likely if they haven't already, but if they do, everything changes. Matt laughed aloud. Everything always changes. The best plan lasts until the first arrow leaves the bow. This would be easy enough for a child to handle, except for Endyrion and the rest not knowing their own minds. If they all decide to go over to Kulid and you toss the dice and hope, because the Dark One's in the game for sure, at least you'll have enough strength clear of the city nearly to match them, enough to hold them for the time you need. Abandon the idea of pursuing Kulidin and turn everything on them as soon as he's well and truly begun crossing the Galen. But it's my bet they'll wait and watch, and come to you once Kulidin is done for. Victory settles a lot of arguments in most men's heads. The music had stopped. Matt glanced at Natale and found the man holding his harp rigidly, staring at him over it harder than ever, staring as if he had never seen him before, did not know what he was. The Gleeman's eyes were dark polished glass, his knuckles white on the harp's gilding. With that, it all crashed home. What he had been saying, the memories he had been embracing. This bit is some of the best writing RJ does in the entire series. There's something to the tone and the way that Matt's thoughts flow when he is really engaged with a problem that make him so deserving as a contender for RJ's best written character. Much in the same way that when we first get Matt's point of view in The Dragon Reborn, Archie plays out him eating the huge meal and deliberately puzzling out where he is and what happened. It's just beautiful work, and I love it. Anyway, Matt's upset about all of this. Lon, for the first time ever, decided to have a conversation with him, and he just could not help but join in. Not only join in, but effortlessly embrace the memories that he's been fighting off. And it says, Springing to his feet, Matt turned to go and found Rand standing just inside the tent, absently twisting that odd bit of tasseled spear as if he did not realize he was holding it. How long had he been there? It did not matter. Matt spilled it all out in a rush. I'm leaving, Rand. Come first light in the morning, I am in the saddle and gone. 
I'd go this minute if I could get far enough in half a day to suit me for stopping. I mean to put as many miles between me and the ideal, any ideal, as Pips can cover before I make camp. No point in bedding down close enough to be snapped up and hung out to dry by somebody's scouts. Cooladin must have them out, too, and even the others might not recognize him before he had a spear in the liver. I will be sorry to see you go, Rand said quietly. Don't try to talk me out of- Matt blinked. That's it? You'll be sorry to see me go? I've never tried to make you stay, Matt. Heron went when he had to, and so can you. Matt opened his mouth, then closed it again. Rand had never tried to make him stay, true. He had just done it without trying, but there was not the slightest bit of Tavir and tugging now, no vague feelings that he was doing the wrong thing. He was clear and firm in his purpose. And then Matt's like, hey, I don't know anything about battles, you know, you understand. And Rand nods, and it says, the light shine on you, Matt, he added, sticking out his hand, and send you smooth roads, fair weather, and pleasant company until we meet again. That would not be soon, if Matt had his way. He felt a little sad about that, and a little foolish for feeling sad, yet a man had to look after himself. When all was said and done, that was the long and short of it. Rand's grip was as hard as it had ever been. All that sword work had only added new calluses atop older bowmen's, but the ridged heron brand in his palm was distinct against Matt's hand. Just a little reminder in case he should forget the markings under his friend's coat sleeves or those even stranger things inside his head that let him channel. If he could forget that Rand could channel, and he had not thought of it once in days, days, then it was far past time to be gone. And then Matt steps out of the tent and leaves, and we hear for only the second time. The first time is the night that the stone falls, when he leaves Mother Gwenna's house and goes to start scouting out the stone so he can rescue the girls. For only the second time, we hear about the dice spinning in his head. And because he hears the dice spinning, I imagine Rand's tent flap as the third doorway. Matt steps through it, and the dice are spinning, and it's time to learn what will be. Our next map point of view is in the next chapter, chapter 43, which is called This Place, This Day. It's the following day and starts with Rand, where he goes to the tower with Egwene and Avienda, and they start channeling to get the battle kicked off, and Rand is nearly swept away by Sidene when Luce Theron shouts, Ilyana, my love, forgive me. And then it switches to Matt. Matt is struggling to get out of the city and away from the soldiers and the Aiel. The only way he can go is south. Rand asks him which way he'll go, and he says south, because he doesn't have any choice about it. He's trying to avoid everyone, because he cannot guarantee that he's not going to get killed by a good guy who mistakes him for an enemy. People kill people they don't mean to all the time in warfare. It happens, and RJ knew it. And Matt, a soldier, not a soldier, not a soldier, a soldier with the memories of a thousand dead soldiers in his head, knows that soldiers kill people they don't mean to all the time, and he doesn't want to risk that by putting himself near any of the other combatants. So he's trying to get south of the battle, and instead, because of all the Aiel who are pushing to get into position, he keeps getting shoved toward the city. As he's trying to find a way out, he's using his spyglass, and he notices that the column of foot and horse that contains the three separate camps of soldiers Rand tells us about when he's first introducing us to High Lord Weirman. He makes it a point to tell us that the camps are very distinct, one of Terran cavalry, one of Kyrian cavalry, and one twice as large of Kyrian and pikemen. And since they aren't Aiel, he trusts them to cooperate well enough together, even though they're obviously not friends. 
But Matt sees them, and as he's looking through his glass, he sees that they are headed for an ideal ambush that they are not aware of because the area all around Kyrian is quite hilly. Matt insists that he's not a soldier, and none of this is for him. But he is a good person. And so it says, For a moment he drummed fingers on his thigh. Shortly there were going to be some corpses down there, and not many of them I yield. None of my affair. I am out of this, out of here, and heading south. He would wait a bit, then head off while they were all too busy to notice. This fellow Weirman, he had heard the Greybeard's name yesterday, was a stone fool. No foreguard out, no scouts, or he'd know what was bloody in store for him. For that matter, the way the hills lay, the way the valley twisted, the Aiel could not see the column either, only its thin dust rising skyward. They certainly had had scouts to get themselves in place. They could not just be waiting there on the off chance. Idly whistling Dance with Jack of the Shadows, he put the looking-glass back to his eye and studied the hilltops. Yes, the Aiel commander had left a few men where they could signal a warning just before the column entered the killing ground, but even they could not possibly see anything yet. In a few minutes the first Terrans would come in sight, but until then, it came as a shock when he heeled Pips to a gallop down slope. What under the light am I doing? Well, he could not just stand by and let them all go to their deaths like geese to the knife. He would warn them, that was all. Tell them what lay in wait ahead, then he was gone. The Kyrian and Outriders saw him coming before he reached the bottom of the slope, of course, heard Pips's dead flat charge. Two or three lowered their lances. Matt did not precisely enjoy having a foot and a half of steel pointed at him and still less three times over, but obviously one man was no threat, even riding like a madman. They let him pass, and he swung in near the lead Kyrian and lords long enough to shout, Halt here! Now! By order of the Lord Dragon, else I'll channel your head into your belly and feed you your own feet for breakfast! His heels dug in and Pips sprang ahead. He only glanced back to be sure they were doing what he said. They were, if showing some confusion over it, the hills hid them from the Aiel still, and once their dust settled, the Aiel would have no way of knowing they were there. And then he was lying low on the gelding's neck, whipping Pips with his hat and galloping up alongside the infantry. If I wait to let Weirman pass the orders, it'll be too late, that's all. He would give his warning and go. The foot marched in blocks of two hundred or so pikemen, with one mounted officer in front of each and maybe fifty archers or crossbowmen at the rear. Most looked at him curiously as he dashed by, Pips's heels kicking up spurts of dust, but none broke stride. Some of the officers' mouths frisked as if the riders wanted to come see what had him in such a hurry, but none of them left their places either. Good discipline. They would need it. Defenders of the stone brought up the tail end of the Terrans in their breastplates and puffy black and gold striped coat sleeves, plumes of various colors on the rimmed helmets marking officers and under-officers. The rest were armored the same, but bore the colors of various lords on their sleeves. The silk-coated lords themselves rode at the very front in ornate breastplates and large white plumes, their banners rippling behind them in a rising breeze toward the city. Reining around in front of them so quickly that Pips danced, Matt shouted, Halt! In the name of the Lord Dragon! It seemed the fastest way to stop them, but for a moment he thought they meant to ride right over him. Almost at the last moment, a young lord he remembered from outside Rand's tent flung up a hand, and then they were all drawing rein and a flurry of shouted orders that ran back along the column. Weirman was not there. Not a lord was as much as ten years older than Matt. What is the meaning of this? demanded the fellow who had signaled. Dark eyes glared arrogantly down a sharp nose. Chin lifted so his pointed beard looked ready to stab. Sweat trickling down his face spoiled it only a little. The lord dragon himself gave me this command. Who are you to— 
He cut off as another man Matt knew caught his sleeve, whispering urgently. Potato-faced Esty and looked haggard beneath his helmet, as well as hot. The Aiel had wrung him out concerning conditions in the city, so Matt had heard. But he had gambled at cards with Matt in tear. He knew exactly who Matt was. Estian's breastplate alone had chips in the ornate gilding. None of the others had done more than ride around looking pretty. Yet. Sharpnose's chin came down as he listened, and when Estian left off, he spoke in a more moderate tone. No offense intended, uh, Lord Matt. I am Milanrel of House Asagora. How may I serve the Lord Dragon? Moderation slipped into actual hesitation at that last, and Estian broke in anxiously. Why should we halt? I know the Lord Dragon told us to hold back, Matt, but per my soul, there's no honor in sitting and letting the Aiel do all the fighting. Why should we be saddled with chasing them after they're broken? Besides, my father is in the city and— He trailed off under Matt's stare. Matt shook his head, fanning himself with his hat. The fools were not even where they should be. There was no chance of turning them back, either. If Milanril would go, and looking at him, Matt was not sure he would, even on supposed orders from the Lord Dragon. There was still no chance. He sat his saddle in plain sight of the ideal lookouts. If the columns started turning around, they would know themselves discovered, and very likely they would attack while the Terrans and the Kyrian and Pike were tangled up. It would be a slaughter as surely as if they had gone ahead in ignorance. So Matt does this out of a sense of obligation and decency. He helps these men out because their leader is a shithead. He's stupid and incompetent. And while Milanrel is not nearly as incompetent as Wereman, he doesn't survive this battle because he refuses to heed Matt's advice. He tells them, march steady through this gap and wait for the pikes to get through behind you. They're going to form a hollow square and you get inside. And once he gives them those orders, he rides back to the pikes and talks to their officer, Darid, and says, hey, do you know how to make a hedgehog? And he's like, yep. And Matt says, great, follow after the Terrans and make your hedgehog. And then he rides back to the Kyrian, and it says... Talmanas of House Delavinda, his con three yellow stars on blue and his banner a black fox, was even shorter than Darid and had three years on Matt at most, but he led these Kyrian and although there were older men and even gray hair present. His eyes held as little expression as Darid's and he looked like a coiled whip. His armor and sword were utterly plain. Once he had told Matt his name, the man listened quietly while Matt laid out his plan, leaning a little out of the saddle to cut lines in the ground with the sword-bladed spear. The other Kyrian and lords gathered round on their horses, watching, but none so sharply as Talmanas. Talmanas studied the map he drew and studied him from boots to hat, even his spear. When he was done, the fellow still did not speak until Matt barked, Well, I don't care whether you take it or leave it, but your friends will be hip-deep in Aiel in not much longer. The Terrans are no friends of mine, and Darid is useful, certainly not a friend. Dry chuckles ran through the onlooking lords at the suggestion but I will lead one half if you lead the other. Talmanis pulled off one steel-packed gauntlet and put out his hand, but for a moment Matt only stared at it. Lead? Him? I'm a gambler, little soldier. A lover. Memories of battles long gone spun through his head, but he forced them down. All he had to do was ride on. But then maybe Talmanis would leave Estian and Darid and the rest to roast on the spit Matt had hung them from. Even so, it was a surprise to him when he grasped the other's hand and said, you just be there when you're supposed to be. For reply, Talmanas began calling off names in a quick voice. Lords and lordlings reigned toward Matt, each followed by a bannerman and perhaps a dozen retainers until he had four hundred odd of the Kyrian in. Talmanas did not have much to say after either. He just led the remainder west at a trot, trailing a faint cloud of dust. Keep together, Matt told his half. 
Charge when I say charge, run when I say run, and don't make any noise you don't have to. There was the creak of saddles and the thud of hooves as they followed him, of course, but at least they did not talk or ask questions. A last glimpse of the other bristle of bright banners and con, and then a twist in the shallow valley hid them. How had he gotten into this? It had all started so simply, just give warning and go. Each step after it seemed so small, so necessary, and now he had waded way too deep into the mud and no choice but to keep on. He hoped Almanas meant to show up. The man had not even asked who he was. So, I love the character of Talmanas. He's probably one of my top minor characters. He's maybe a level 5 character as far as importance, and I just find him so interesting. And he's one of those characters where I'm grateful that RJ never did a POV for him, so that way Brandon could just make him whoever he was. And I feel like Brandon did a superb job. Talmanas is pivotal in forcing Matt to be who he needs to be. He hooks the Taviran by being like, okay, I'll trust you, but you have to do your part. I'll lead one half, but you have to lead the other. And here we see Matt as he flounders, like, wait, I was just going to help. I was just going to do this, and I was just going to do this. And so, just like with the first two doorways, each step is logical. It made sense to do this. And this small, necessary choice led to this further sensible step leading to this total shit show. And who among us doesn't know what that's like? Maybe not on such an epic scale, but we all know where it made sense to do X, and it made sense to do Y, and it made sense to do Z, and how did such fuckery abound from all of these small and sensible choices? We next get Matt's point of view, after Robert Jordan gives Rand his little trolley problem, where he decides to kill his own troops to keep the Shido from getting into the city, and then Samael attacks the tower, and Rand is forced to go into battle on horseback. Matt has been trying to get the men who are becoming the band out. We get a rundown of the skirmishes that they've been through, and then he is approached by Talmanes, Darid, Estian, and Nalesian, one of the smart Terran lords who followed Matt's orders, got inside the pikes, and lived, unlike Milanril, and so now leads the Terrans. R.I.P. Milanril. The four of them tell Matt, hey, a whole bunch of the Shido are coming, and hey, Kuladin is with them, or at least some dude who has super shiny tattoos on his arms like they say that the Lord Dragon has. And it says, Matt grunted, Kuladin, and heading east. If there was any way to step aside, the fellow would run headlong into Rand. That might even be what he was after. Matt realized that he was smoldering, and it had nothing to do with Kuladin wanting to kill Rand. The Shido chief, or whatever the man was, might remember Matt vaguely as somebody hanging about Rand, but Kuladin was the reason he was stuck out here in the middle of a battle trying to stay alive, wondering whether any minute it was going to turn into a personal fight between Rand and Samael, the kind of fight that might kill everything within two or three miles. That's if I don't get a spear through the brisket first. And no more choice about it than had a goose hanging outside the kitchen door. None of it would be so without Kuladin. A pity no one had killed the man years ago. He certainly gave excuses enough. Aiel seldom let anger show, and when they did, it was cold and tight. Kuladin, on the other hand, seemed to flare up two or three times a day, losing his head in a fiery rage as quick as snap a straw. A miracle he was still alive, and the Dark One's own luck. Nalesian, Matt said angrily. Swing your Terrans wide to the north and come in on these fellows from behind. We will be holding their attention, so you ride hard and come down like a barn collapsing. So he has the Dark One's luck, does he? Blood and ashes, but I hope mine is back in. 
Talmon, as you do the same to the south. Move, both of you. We've little time and it's wasting. The two Terrans bowed hastily and dashed for their horses, clapping on their helmets. Talmanaz's bow was more formal. Grace, favor your sword, Matt. Or perhaps I should say your spear. Then he was gone, too. Looking up at Matt as the three vanished down the hill, Darid slashed rain from his eyes with a finger. So you will stay with the Pikes this time. You must not let your anger at this cool it and overcome you. A battle is no place to try fighting a duel. Matt barely stopped from gaping. A duel? Him? With Kulanen? Was that why Darren thought he was staying with the foot? He had chosen it because it was safer to be behind the pikes. That was his reason. The whole reason. Not to worry, I can hold myself in rain. And he had thought Darren the most sensible of the whole lot. The Kyrian merely nodded. I thought that you could. You've seen pikes pushed before and faced a charge or two, I vow. Talmanis gives praises when there are two moons, yet I heard him say aloud that he would follow wherever you led. Someday I would like to hear your story, Anderman. But you were young. Under the light I mean no disrespect, and young men have hot blood. This rain will keep it cool if nothing else does. Blood and ashes. Were they all mad? Talmanis was praising him? He wondered what they would say if they found out he was only a gambler following bits of memory from men dead a thousand years and more. They would be drawing lots for the first chance to spit him like a pig. The lords especially. No one liked being made to look a fool, but nobles seemed to like it least of all, perhaps because they so often managed it on their own. Well, one way or another, he meant to be miles away when that discovery came. Bloody cool it, and I'd like to shove this spear down his throat. Healing pips, he started for the opposite slope, where the foot waited below. Darid climbed into his own saddle and swung in beside him, nodding as Matt spun out his plan the bowmen on the slopes where they could cover the flanks but lying down, hidden in the brush until the last minute, one man on the crest to signal the Aiel in sight and the pikes to step off as soon as he did, marching straight out toward the approaching enemy. As soon as we can see the Shido, we'll retreat just as fast as we can, almost back to the gap between these two hills, then turn to face them. They will think we wanted to run, realized we could not, and turned at bay like a bear to the hounds. Seeing us less than half their number and fighting only because we must, they should think to roll over us. Can we but hold their attention until the horse comes down on them from behind? The Kyrian actually grinned. It is using the Aiel's own tactics against them. We had better hold their bloody attention. Matt's tone was as dry as he was wet. To make sure we do, to make sure they don't start putting loops around our flanks, I want a cry raised as soon as you stop the retreat. Protect the Lord Dragon. This time, Darid laughed aloud. That should bring the Shido in right enough, especially if Kuladin was leading. If Kuladin really was leading. If he thought Rand was with the Pikes. If the Pikes could hold until the horse arrived. A lot of ifs. Matt could hear those dice rolling in his head again. This was the biggest gamble he had ever taken in his life. He wondered how long it was until nightfall. A man should be able to make his way out in the night. He wished those dice would get out of his head or else fall so he knew what they showed. Scowling into the rain, he booted Pips on down the hillside. And, of course, Matt gets the duel with Kooladin that he absolutely does not want. And I've heard a lot of folks lament that RJ doesn't describe it, but blow-by-blow -blow fights are only interesting to a certain extent. And Jordan has a limited amount of words to give to Matt, and this section that is the battle in Kyrian is already pretty girthy, and the tactics are what's important. The inner narrative where Matt gives us a higher interpretation of the battlefield, so I don't personally regret it. Also, Kooladin is an asshole and doesn't deserve to die on screen. In our next Matt perspective, everybody is getting shit-faced because the battle is over. 
And we have Matt avoiding thinking about Kooladin, whose head is hanging from a pole that he's trying not to look at. And he thinks in his inner narrative about how he and the Terrans and the Kyrianen returned at dawn. It says, returned, right back to the hill valley where they had started, below the ruin of the log tower, and no chance for him to get away. He had offered to ride ahead, and Helmanas and Alessia nearly came to blows over who was to provide his escort. Not everyone had become the best of friends. All he needed now was for Moraine to come asking questions about where he had been and why, nattering at him about Taviran and duty, about the pattern and Tarman Guyton until his head spun. Doubtless she was with Rand now, but she would get around to him eventually. Talmanas and Nalesian approach him and tell him about this awesome procession that the High Lord Mylon is planning for the Lord Dragon, and Matt's like, who fucking cares? And they tell him, it matters because you killed Kooladin. You're our battle leader, and we deserve to be at the head. And Nalesian and Talmanas begin arguing over whose servant can do what for him to make him look respectable and how they need a banner. And it says, Matt was not sure whether to laugh hysterically or sit down and cry. Those bloody memories. If not for them, he would have ridden on. If not for Rand, he would not have the things. He could trace the steps that led to them, each necessary as it seemed at the time and seeming an end in itself yet each leading inevitably to the next. At the beginning of it all lay Rand and bloody Taviran. He could not understand why doing something that seemed absolutely necessary and as close to harmless as he could make it always seemed to lead him deeper into the mire. And Matt, in his distress, has backslid a bit here. In the beginning of the book, he acknowledges that it's just Taviran and none of this is Rand's fault. But when he's feeling maximum levels of aggravation, there's no reasonableness or fairness to his inner narrative. Matt turns the melodrama up to 11 and moans to himself that if not for Rand, his life would be perfect. And a little bit further, it says, Kulin's head really did appear to be grinning at him. He could almost hear the man speak. You may have killed me, but you've put your foot squarely in the trap. I'm dead, but you'll never be free. And that's true. And we see it in the final section of the story when we get to the chapter News Comes to Kyrian, which, considering how pivotal a chapter it is, I really wish it had a pithier name. But Matt shows up four hours after Rand summoned him, and Rand starts going to work on him. It says, I hear, Rand said, that every young man who can pick up a sword wants to join the Band of the Red Hand. Talmon is an Alessian or having to turn them away in droves and Derrick has doubled the number of his footmen. Matt paused and lowering himself into the chair Ericom had used. It's true. A fine lot of young fellows wanting to be heroes. The Band of the Red Hand, Moraine murmured. Shenan Kalhar, a legendary group of heroes indeed, though the men in it must have changed many times in a war that lasted well over three hundred years. It is said they were the last to fall to the Trollocs, guarding Eamon himself when Manetherin died. Legend says a spring rose where they fell to mark their passing, but I rather think the spring was already there. I wouldn't know about that. Matt touched the foxhead medallion and his voice picked up strength. Some fool got the name from somewhere and they all started using it. Moraine glanced at the medallion dismissively. The small blue stone hanging on her forehead seemed to catch the light and glow, though the angles were wrong. You are very brave, it seems, Matt. It was flatly said, and the silence that followed stiffened his face. Very brave, she said finally, to lead Shenan Kalhar across the Elguenya and south against the Androns. Even braver than that, for there are rumors that you went alone to scout the way, 
and Almanas and Alessian had to ride hard to catch up to you. Egwene sniffed loudly in the background. Hardly wise for a young lord leading his men. Matt's lip curled. I'm no lord. I've more respect for myself than that. But very brave, Moraine said as if he had not spoken. Andoran's supply wagons burned, outposts destroyed, and three battles, three battles and three victories, was small loss to your own men, though outnumbered. As she fingered a rip in the shoulder of his coat, he sank back as far as the chair would allow. Are you drawn to the thick of battles, or are they drawn to you? I am almost surprised you came back. To hear the stories, you might have driven the Andorans back across the Aranon had you stayed. Do you think this is funny? Matt snarled. If you have something to say, say it. You can play the cat all you want, but I'm no mouse. For an instant, his eyes flickered toward Egwene and Avienda, watching with folded arms, and he fingered the silver fox head again. He had to be wondering. It had stopped one woman's channeling from touching him. Would it stop three? Rand only watched. Watched his friend being softened for what he meant to do to him. Is there anything left to me but necessity? It was a quick thought, there and gone. He would do what he must. Matt didn't go alone to scout the way. Moraine more or less taunts him. You went alone to scout the way, and Talmanas and Alessian had to ride really hard to catch you up. Aren't you brave? He wasn't scouting. He was trying to get away. He was trying to take a chance to escape now that the battle is over. He's like, I can get free. But he can't get away from the band. They won't allow it. The band are Matt's army. The people he generals, but they're also his minders. He no longer needs Tavir and Tugging to hold him to the pattern because he has them. And once he finally accepts them, the idea of an obligation to the pattern doesn't mean much to Matt. But loyalty and keeping promises and being there for people who need you, ride or die, means everything. We get Matt's final POV in the chapter news comes to Kyrian. Rand's perspective switches to Egwene and then to Matt, after his meeting with Rand. We don't see very much of the meeting, just where Rand tells him, Shut up. You have to stop running. I was there. I was there when you got this medallion. I know what it means. I saved your life. You need to unfuck yourself. Then we get to Matt's head, and it says, The stormy meeting with Rand had gone on till the sunset. Him dodging, refusing. Rand following as doggedly as Hawkwing after the rout at Cole Pass. What was he to do? If he rode out again, Talmanas and Alessian would surely follow with as many men as they could put in the saddle, expecting him to find another battle. And he probably would. That was what really put a chill on it. Much as he hated to admit it, the Aes Sedai was right. He was drawn to battle, or it to him. Nobody could have tried harder to avoid one on the other side of the Alguenya. Even Talmanas had commented on it until the second time his careful creeping away from one lot of Andorans took them where there was no choice but to fight another, and every time he could feel the dice rolling in his head. It was almost like a warning that a fight was just over the next hill now. There was always a ship, or might be, down at the docks beside the grain barges. Hard to find yourself in a battle on a ship in the middle of a river, except the Andorans held one bank of the Alguinia for half its length or more below the city. The way his luck was running, the ship would run aground on the west bank with half the Andoran army camp there. That left doing what Rand wanted. He could just see it. Good morrow, High Lord Weirman, and all you other High Lords and Ladies. I'm a gambler, a farm boy, and I'm here to take command of your bloody army. 
The bloody Lord Dragon Reborn will be with us as soon as he flaming takes care of one bloody little matter. Snatching his black-hafted spear from the corner, he hurled it the length of the room. It struck a wall hanging, a hunting scene, and the stone wall behind with a loud clang, then dropped to the floor, leaving the hunters neatly sliced in two. Swearing, he hurried to pick it up. The two-foot sword blade was not chipped or marred. Of course not. I said I work. He fingered the ravens on the blade. Will I ever be free of I said I work? It's hard to imagine what Rand might have said to Matt. Beyond, I was there. I saved you. I need you. But it's obvious in this passage that Matt hasn't agreed yet. And I think the reason Rand lets him go after four hours is because he has no doubt that Matt will end up doing what he wants in the end. When Rand woke after the battle and got all the news from Avienda, he was very surprised to hear Matt killed Kuladin, and we get, so Matt had not escaped the pull of Taviran to Taviran after all. Or maybe it was the pattern that had caught him, and being Taviran himself. Either way, he suspected Matt was not too happy right that moment. Matt had not learned the lesson that he had. Try to run away and the pattern pulled you back, often roughly. Run in the direction the wheel wove you, and sometimes you could manage a little control over your life. Sometimes. With luck, maybe more than any expected, at least in the long haul. And this is never an acknowledgement that Matt consciously makes, at least not that I can recall. He just grows used to accepting Rand's orders, and he grows used to the band. And the part of him that is so inherently a soldier relaxes into that role, and he stops fighting. And giving up the fight is about as close to acceptance as you can expect Matt to get. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Podcast of the Dragon. Season 2 of The Wheel of Time on Prime will be dropping in approximately two weeks, so anticipate that the next content I put out will be on YouTube and show-related. The link to my YouTube channel is in the show notes, and if you like the TV show and are interested in my take, you should subscribe! My rough drafts are available on Patreon. They can be uploaded as few as 10 days or as many as 6 weeks before the final, and you'll be able to see how it improved, what I added, and what I cut out. If you'd like to support the show and have access to that or other fun content, there's a link in the show notes. There are other links to my Discord and to my email, etc., and to my Twitter handle, at PodOfTheDragon. I'm still on Twitter even if it's dying, and I'm still calling it Twitter because, let's face it, X is stupid. There's also a link to Apple Podcasts. If you could go and review me, either there or on whatever platform you are listening on, I'd really appreciate it because it will help other people find me, and so will word of mouth. So if you know anyone who likes The Wheel of Time and might be interested in a different kind of podcast, please tell them about me. My music is by Kevin McLeod. My name is Morgan. And when life is a shit show, I also like to turn the melodrama up to 11. But I don't blame other people. It's far more fun to strike a dramatic pose and claim I did something to deserve my misfortune.